Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is episode 247, Top 10 Ridiculous Components in Board Games. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers for helping us bring you an ad-free episode. This is Chris. And this is Anthony. So, Anthony, it looks like we're going back to that deep, dark place in board gaming where we talk about all the things that everyone talks about in the shadows. So for this episode, we are talking about the craziest, ridiculous, insane component in board gaming. You've been there, right? You open a game up, you set it up, and you think, what the heck is this? Why does this need to be here? How much more did I pay for this game because of this specific component that is now going to drive me crazy for the rest of my life? (laughs) <laughs> and we found 10 of them. We have 10. I'm sure there's a lot more, but we're going to give you the top 10. You probably have stumbled across these things and just wondered why. And for this episode, we are going to list them out. But even us, with our profound podcasting abilities, I don't think, Anthony, you and I can even come to a conclusion on why these things actually ended up in our board games. Yeah, I mean, it's... I it's. Some of these are just like, oh, that's cute. I see what they're doing. It wasn't necessary, but it's cute. And other ones, you're just like, what are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> like, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, so I think like, like the top ones on here were things that we have at some point in the last few years on this podcast specifically been like, why? And I think this is a good way to like gather all those whys together and continue to ask why. <laughs> So yet another deep, heart-hitting, existential episode for you. But before we get into all of those reality-shattering questions, Anthony, let's get into the episode, and let's talk about what our listeners are talking about. What's our question of the week? All right, question of the week this week. Do you use the promos that you get for your games? If you do, do you have any criteria for which ones you will or will not use? So this is Board Gamers Anonymous. Uh, one of our first segments is acquisition, acquisition disorder. You know that we're picking up those promos. And so I asked everybody if they do the same thing and then if they actually use them, because that's a completely separate thing. <laughs> uh, so first off the bat, Amy says, I can't think of any promos I have that aren't shuffled into the standard game components. Only reason I wouldn't use one that I know of is that it requires an expansion that hasn't been integrated already. So Amy's like, everything goes in the box. It's all in there all the time. Understood. Matthew says the same thing. I use them all. The more the merrier. Kyle says I throw everything in. There aren't many games where I feel the promo causes an issue. David also says always. Uh, Chris is a little bit in the middle. He says as long as they're not too off the wall, he does love using them. Uh, He likes to collect them more, though. And then especially at cons where they're a little bit cheaper. Uh, Willie goes into a little bit more detail. So he says the answer depends on how easy it is to incorporate them into the game. So he says, Terraforming Mars promo cards, just another card added to the deck. No reason not to use them. Totally agree. Some games, though, where the promo has its own rule sheet or is difficult to add to the game, you have to remove something else from the game. Maybe he won't add it in and keep it separate. So I kind of agree with most of these statements. Most of my promos, and part of the reason why is just that it's amazingly difficult to keep track of them if you're not going to just mix them in. And if there's no reason not to, why not just include them? 
Now, there are a few exceptions. You know, we played Root just yesterday with my game group. And I'm like setting up the game. And I'm like, does anybody remember what the spy cards do? And everybody's like staring at each other. I'm like, yeah, let's take the spy, spy cards out. I don't remember what these do. They're out of the game because I, I don't know what these do. Um, I do have a few things that came in like the, the you know, the advent calendars that came out every year from that Breton Spiel. And some of those have like big, long rule sheets that come with them. So I usually baggy those up separately and put them in the box. So they're with the game if anybody wants to do it, but just separate, you know. So I kind of have different rules for different games, but it's, if I can mix it in, I generally do. Uh, what, what about you? Yeah, I think I think you mentioned earlier, obviously, acquisition disorders. So if there is a promo out there, we're probably going to go ahead and pick it up. And if we do, we're probably going to put in the game. As you mentioned, it is typically because most of these promos tend to be individual cards. So they kind of go in the set and then only when you kind of stumble across them and can't figure them out because usually they're not play tested. Or as you mentioned, they usually have a separate rule set that we all like, wait a minute, I can't find this in the rule book. Can you find this in the rule book? No, I can't find this in the rule book. And you're like, oh, wait a minute. This must be a thing. All right. So, yeah, I mean, considering the fact that a lot of these promos (laughs) cost a very high percentage of what we pay for the actual board game itself. So like, hey, here's a single card. It was 10 bucks or five bucks mm. or whatever. Yeah, it's 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 going in the game, man. Oh, yeah. I, I, yeah, we're not worried about the, the meta, so to speak. It's going in the game. Yeah, and like there's a weird situation too, and this happens a lot with Kickstarter. And I don't know if you call these promos or not because you get them anyways, but like the Kickstarter exclusive stuff where they're like, oh, uh, the fans really want this, you know, rainbow unicorn that, eats sky cloud whatever it is you know something insane and so they make it and they put it in the game but they did zero play testing and they openly admit it like yes blood rage is a good example blood rage has like two or three of its initial uh kickstarter stretch goals which i would call promos that you just aren't supposed to use they're broken like fenrir is straight up broken don't play with that (laughs) i I don't i've never played with fenrir it's broken right (laughs) Nah, i i he, he comes into the game. I think the best for me is the Clans of Caldonia, where it actually says oh, yeah. the rule book. <laughs> we did not play test these, so use these at your own risk. And I'm like, oh, come on, guys. Come on. <laughs> if you could print it in the rule book, you should have play tested these. Because, you know, sometimes you get a game, and it's like, here's some blank cards, or here's a random piece that you can customize. Like, at that point, I'm like, okay you've now given me permission to do crazy stuff. So I get that. But if you're going to go to the length of actually printing up a quality component or a card, you got to play it. Come on. Come on, guys. It just sounds like a CYA at that point. They're like, uh, you know, we threw it in, but, you know, it's all on you. You figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's that final revenge of the Kickstarter manager who just got so tired and, you know, fed up with, all of the backers complaining about whatever. They're like, you know what? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to give you a thing. And you're going to put it in your game. It's going to blow your game up. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, it's their version of quitting. You know, they're just like, I that's could right. take down your website. Or I could throw in a superfluous Kickstarter stretch goal. So, ha <laughs> There you go. All right. So, that's what's going on with our listeners. Anthony, we have a lot of great stuff thanks to our listeners and obviously having these episodes come out each and every week and especially our Patreon backed episodes 
that if you log on to patreon.com slash BGA, you could be a Patreon backer and help us bring out more episodes, more content, different content. Join us on our Slack group and let us know what you'd like to hear from BGA. We're here for you, so let us know. All right, Anthony, so let's get on to the games that we want to hit our table. Let's talk about our acquisition disorders. Okay, so my first one on the list here, uh, and I pulled this from, I can't remember exactly if it was the BGG Con list or the PAX Unplugged list, but one of the upcoming cons will have this game available for people to take a look at, and it is called Flotilla. That's from WizKids, designers J.B. Howell and Michael Mihalisic, and just the theme alone really caught my attention. So the idea here is that the Bikini Atoll nuclear test basically ripped the Earth apart. And so all the remnants of humanity are now living on this giant flotilla in the middle of the ocean that you have to help maintain. So the game is played in two different stages. So you have the first side, the sink side, in which you are a fleet commander um, working for various world leaders who are going out and exploring the different parts of the ocean, looking for resources underwater, rescuing survivors, all that stuff. At a certain point in the game, you will switch to the other part, which is sky side which is actually working on building the flotilla and making it bigger and giving places for people to live and, and actually explore and use those resources that you've all generated. So mechanically speaking, it's kind of like in the deck bag pool building genre of things. You have all these different resources you're trying to manage. There's a lot of dice that are used for certain situations. You're placing tiles out to build the flotilla and it, it looks like a decently complicated Euro game uh, in its own right, but just thematically speaking, it is just off the wall. <laughs> like, And I love that because so many Euro games are just along one of the similar routes that we're used to seeing, especially the heavy ones, right? So that alone caught my attention. The two different sizes or types of gameplay, uh, that is also very interesting to me. Like one of my favorite games of all time is Spirium. It's similar to that, although it does it on a round-to-round basis where you you make decisions and then you switch over and then you make different types of decisions and people can make that decision at different points. I always love that mechanic in games because it's almost has a press your luck element to it of when do I jump over? If I jump over too early, then I'm hurting myself by not generating enough resources. But if I jump over too late, then I'm a little later to get these other things that the opponents are going to pick up. So I that's one of my favorite mechanics, just the tension that it builds. This one seems to have that. It seems to have a whole bunch more going for it. That's about as much as I know about the game. Unfortunately, I won't be at either of those cons this year, so I can't actually check this one out. But I will keep my eye out for it going forward because... It looks unique. It looks interesting. And the fact that I haven't heard of it doesn't mean anything because it's a WizKids game and they don't promote their games at all. So they tend to just show up and either be good or bad or whatever they are. But it, on the surface, at least, it looks pretty cool. Yeah, this is a really, really wacky theming. I, I don't know where they got this from. And I'm really pretty impressed with the fact that they pulled something completely different out of the box. Yeah, no, it's off the wall. And I feel like more people should try to do this because generally speaking, board games are a combination of mechanics, right? Especially Euro games. They could be about anything. Mm -hmm. And the theme that you put there is to help people understand the mechanics. It's not necessarily the big part of the game. It's to guide them in how they do things. So it could be literally anything. If the world building is good, then the game will be good. 
And as a writer and somebody who is just, this is my background. This is the stuff I like, like world building and fiction and just like having clear identifiers of what you're trying to accomplish and what you're trying to understand. This is, it just seems interesting, you know, and uh, I look forward to seeing what they do. Yeah. I really like the look of this and now it's on my radar. So definitely want to sit down and play this. All right. So I'm looking at a game that is currently on Kickstarter this is Tongaro, a Euro game designed by Lewis and Stefan Maltz, uh, probably best known for Rococo. And it's a seafaring, culture-spreading, dice-placement Euro game for two to five players. And it's dealing with the archipelago of the islands in the Pacific. So this is not a specific culture or historical representation, but it takes some elements from that area and from those cultures and creates a new specific for this game type of culture. So it's not any cultural appropriations, which is awesome, but yet it does have some of that spiritual kind of uh, connection there. Now, this is from Alley Cat Games, and the Kickstarter will wrap up on Thursday, November 28th. So you still have probably about two weeks to jump on and check this one out. I'm a huge fan of Rococo, and I just really like that game so much. So when I saw this pop up on Kickstarter, I was actually really excited about it. Now, not just the designers here, but the artist from Tapestry is providing the artwork here, and it's really, really great. It's it's a real nice combination here. Now, the game itself is, as I stated earlier, it's all about spreading your culture throughout these various islands and dealing with resources and creating engines that will be able to help you throughout the game. So it's a beautiful production here. All these different island chains that are put together, you have your boat and you have your workers. In this case, your workers will be dice in the game. And basically what you'll be doing is at the start of the turn, someone will roll dice and then you will take a look at your chosen roll card. So these roll or leader cards, you'll choose one of them in secret and then based upon the role of the first player's dice roll, you will be able to gain benefits. Now, everyone has to use the same dice, but you will have a unique role that you played, and that will let you gain certain benefits. Once you play that leader card or role card in the game, at the end of the round, it's going to get passed around to someone else. Now, everyone starts with the same deck of leader cards, but throughout the game, as those different roles get played, they get passed around. So you're a little bit limited as far as what you can play throughout the game. But basically, you're going to be moving these ships around to these different islands, utilizing the dice to do a number of different things, which are typically resource-based, or picking up these nomads, which are going to give you special abilities and provide some tableau building throughout the game. And that's going to be the main, how would you say it, uh, victory point condition in this game, because it's all going to come down to utilizing those nomads in such a way that you're going to maximize the amount of points based upon something specific for them. This game is beautiful. It has an upgraded version where it has all these cultural monuments that are really nicely done with screen printing. And they also have an upgrade to the ship. So instead of just a generic kind of plain piece of cardboard, you can get a nice plastic piece to hold your dice it's going to come out a little bit of an additional cost, but not too crazy. And I think this is really what drew my attention to it. So if you like the retail version of the game, it's just $38, which is not too bad. If you want the upgraded, it's kind of on the line, considering what you're getting is not necessarily 
utilized so much in the game, but it's really nice to have in the game. It's going to range about $53. So since this game is in euros, you know, things might fluctuate, so to speak. But generally, base game is going to be 38 and the upgraded conditions here are going to be 53 Shipping to the U.S. is $6, which is also pretty cool. This is something I may back. I may even back it by the end of the episode. I'll let you know. But uh, it's something fun to check out. That's Tungaro. It's on Kickstarter right now. Yeah, this looks really good. I hadn't seen it before. Like, Rococo didn't, like, scratch the same ish for me as it did for you. But I still thought it was a really interesting game. So I'll have to check this yeah, out. Yeah, it's a nice, I would say, medium weight euro. It's nothing super complex, but it looks like a nice, nice production. All right, Anthony. So that's the games that we want to hit the table. Let's talk about the games that actually did hit the table. And we'll let everybody know if those games are a buy and they should run out and pick those games up. If those games are a play and they should sit down and play them. If those games are a dodge and they should avoid them. Or if those games are just so ridiculous that they might as well burn them because why the heck are they even here? So what do you have for us this week, Anthony? All right. So I have one that I got a chance to play originally at Gen Con and now have had a chance to play a couple more times with a like a full-blown copy. And that is Old West Impresario. So Old West Impresario is from Tasty Minstrel Games, designed by Stan Kordonsky. And they... They're calling it like a sequel-ish to Pioneer Days, and they've used the same artwork and the same presentation, but the game feels somewhat different, at least. Um, Weight-wise, it's about the same. No, it's pretty light. It's pretty accessible. This is a uh, tile-laying, tableau-building game, like almost purely. And in it, what you're doing is every round, there will be a set number of dice uh, along one through six where tiles are located. And you will be able to do one of several things. You're going to pick a die and you're going to either activate every building in your tableau that has that number on it, or you're going to take one of the tiles beneath that die and add it to your tableau unbuilt, or you're going to use it to you know generate resources or whatever it might be. So it is generally a fairly simple, fairly quick game. And the complexity comes into how you build out your tableau, like the combination of tiles, where you place them, like fairly simple things in there like you want to have the inns next to the the mines you want to have the taverns next to the inns you want to have all these things need to be located in certain places there are different icons on them that you want to put in different positions to score points as well there are global achievements that anybody can go for once you get them you get the points they go away so it has all the things you expect from a game where everybody has like open information you're kind of racing towards you know similar info you know uh, achievements at the center of the board. It, it's interesting. It was fun. It was one of the very rare games when I played it at Gen Con where I got to sit down and play the entire game in a demo because it is very quick. It is about 45 minutes long, even with like a full player count. I played it with two and it took us like a half an hour. It's very, very quick because the decisions are fairly simple and they're fairly light and you don't have to really drag it out. You just generally make your decision, put your tile down, activate whatever you want to activate, and that's it. There is some chaining there in terms of, you know, like maybe you put like five buildings in your tableau that have the number four on them, and you pull a number four die, you could activate all those buildings, which is awesome. But otherwise, it's it's pretty straightforward. I like it because I like tableau builders, but it doesn't do anything all that, you know, <laughs> amazingly universally different than other tableau builders. So... It's a soft play. It is 
decently expensive because of all the cardboard in the box for a game that generally like on BGG, it's it's around a seven rating, which I think is about right. It is a game. It is a well-made game, but it is a game. It doesn't do anything new. It doesn't do anything different. It's fun, but it's not amazing. So if you have a chance to play it, I say go for it. it. You'll have a good time, but don't necessarily pick it up because you probably already have a game that is very similar. So it's Old West. Interesting. You know, the first thing I, I kind of recognized in this game was these blank faced little chit people. And I'm like, I know these blank faced little chit people. And I checked it out. And of course, the artist is also the artist from the Manhattan Project, which the whole game, you're putting those little people oh, yeah. out there. I'm like, there you go. <laughs> so maybe yeah, yeah, this yeah. has some historical connection, like these people in the Old West eventually became I guess he's nuclear physicist in the future for some reason. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. If these people did anything in the game, <laughs> I would agree with you. But all they do is sit there because they're just victory points. You get them for doing things and then you spend them sometimes to do other. Th- I don't know. They, it's There's a lot of cool stuff here that could be more interesting. Like you get little cardboard dollar bills. You get those little people that you populate your town with, but they don't do much. It is a very light game, so it's fine. I had fun with it, but it's not, you know. I I wonder if, you know, know, maybe we should turn this podcast more into, I don't know, like a lobbying effort for certain games. Like we'll get all the listeners together and be like, you know what? This is a really okay game, but it definitely needs an an expansion like post haste. So maybe we should start like a letter writing campaign or an email writing campaign or a, a Twitter campaign to get somebody to kind of like upgrade their own game to the point where it's like, Hey, now this is a great game because I think we find that a lot. I mean, sometimes certain games have things chiseled out of it in order to make it affordable or just because they want to have an expansion. But it seems like more and more these days, the industry is trying to get down to the point where it is a true gateway game, but somehow it just doesn't, make it there it just kind of falls off the cliff like you could play ticket to ride forever and enjoy it at any level and yet games like this seem like they're fine but they're just fine it's just kind of sad they're just it's a dime a dozen there's so many games like this like and to your point about the expansions i I just got an ad earlier today i was looking at montana there's a different game that was on kickstarter a while ago but it has two expansions on Kickstarter right now that expand a game that had the exact same feeling about. It was like, this is fine. I like it, but it's just short and doesn't do enough. And they're expanding it and giving you more because that's what it should have had in the first place. It's a cool idea that they, they whittle down too much and it just makes the game less interesting. And the replayability just drops off the cliff. And I think that's the thing that missing. They're like, Oh, it's a, we want to make it gateway ish. I'm like, yeah, but I don't want to replay it. And therefore, it's not a good gateway, you know? So anyways, all fine <laughs> games. Well, this you know, is going to be 6.5 to 7.5 reviews. You know, it's just it's what well, we this got. is going to be awkward <laughs> because let me start with my review or my rating in the case, which is, yeah, it's just like what Anthony said. This game is Columba. Columba <laughs> is a game that's all about the start of the gold rush. That sounds fantastic and yet it's just okay you know it's another one of these old western games like you just talked about anthony that is a light to medium weight game i mean this kind of reaches maybe a 3.0 just because there are some moving parts to it 
but otherwise it is somewhat a rather generic euro game now one of the interesting things about this game is that it has the same artist as architects of the west and of paladins so when you look at the box cover you're like oh this seems like a very serious game and then you look at the character artwork and you're like huh wait a minute i know these people (laughs) these people are really cartoony and i remember them from other games and this game fits in those weight kind of categories where it's like light to medium but nothing really that overly impressive and yet at the same time it's fine it's a game about the old west and in this game what you're basically doing is you're managing the boom of that town so everyone has their own little wheel they'll pick a an action that they want to take the wheel will move each and every round and based upon what everyone picks that area might bust and therefore you won't get the boom, which is the extra bonus action of that particular spot. Not to worry because you'll be able to build cards throughout the game that'll even benefit you in that situation. But basically the game is a bunch of little mini games, so to speak. So there's a little map situation and there's card building like an architects and paladins where you build up your buildings. And there's also opportunity to fight outlaws that come out throughout the game. But Basically, the game feels so much similar to Architects of the West Kingdom and Paladins that I'm really surprised it's not the same designer. And yet, it's just fine. It's a basic game, action selection. You see what you get. You build up your buildings. Maybe you build a hotel or two up. You move your little horse-drawn carriage around a little bit. And otherwise, it's just generically fine. So Coloma... It does some things right. If you get the upgraded version, you'll be pretty impressed with the components. But otherwise, it's just another okay game. And I would recommend it as a very soft, light play. Yeah, no, it's it's a funny game because I've seen it on preview lists for a while now. And I know it released at Essen or around Essen. And it was on Kickstarter, obviously. And it looked interesting, but it had that Kickstarter sheen where they spent a lot of time polishing it and making it look really nice. And you're just like, look at the mechanics and you're like, I can't tell how this is going to play out. It seems like yeah. it might just be kind of samey. And it, it's I totally guess the that, same. I guess and and talk is. about ridiculous components in our feature view. This game doesn't make it in there, but it really, really should because the upgrade version comes with a real metal sheriff badge, so to speak. And that's the first player marker. (laughs) So I was like, huh, this is really heavy and interesting. And then we never used it again. So, oh, yay, upgrades. (laughs) All right. So that's everything that has hit our table this week. Let's get on to our feature review. So for our feature review this week, we are talking about the top 10 ridiculous components in board games you know them you've seen them you've played with them sometimes they're okay sometimes they're absolutely crazy and sometimes you just scratch your head how this got into the game and how it boosted up the final cost and just breaks your mind a little bit anthony we got the top 10 ridiculous components do you my friend do you own any of these games before we get into the list uh that's a good question um i own one two three uh-huh four four of these so yep 
And I think I've complained about all four of them. So there you go. So these are not necessarily the worst or the most evil components in board games, but they are ridiculous, Anthony. So let's. Yeah. So like you said, this is like we're not saying these games are bad because of the components or these games fail or whatever it might be. It's just like this one thing. You cannot help but look at it and be like, why? Why, why, why? So we're going to start off with the most recent why, why, why? And that is Tapestry. And I feel like. We're, we're beating a dead horse here a little bit, so that's why we're leading off with it instead of putting it higher on the list. But Tapestry, those buildings, they just don't need to exist. And I know that, Jamie, God bless you, man, but you've, you you know, big, long blog posts, lots of explanations about why they exist that way. And they look fantastic and they're fun to hold and they're really cool to look at, but they don't do anything. They don't need to be there. It could just be a piece of cardboard. I don't know what it would have knocked off the price. I know he said $10 for the painting, maybe more if they didn't exist at all. <laughs> I don't know, but it is a bit much for a game that in general, just is kind of a, you know, above average to average uh, civilization builder. So that's tapestry at number 10 with the buildings. All right. Number nine is Hamburg's bell. Now Hamburg is building this fantastical building in order to have the bell at the top. So if you're able to be the first person who gets there and builds up for the bell, guess what? There's an actual metal bell in the game. It's not huge or anything. It's a little bell. But nonetheless, it is kind of ridiculous when you see this kind of straight lace Euro game on the table. And for some reason, someone pulls out a little tin bell and you're like, huh, okay, does this go on top of something does it does it fit in somewhere and they're like no 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 it's just, just a bell and you know you built church and the thing and it's got the bell and and then and you just kind of look at each other and you just pretend that it never ever happened and that's our number nine hamburg's bell all right number eight uh this one actually comes from bruno cathala who is one of the most prolific and i would argue one of the best designers of the last five years got five tribes seven wonders duel abyss Yamatai, Queen Domino, King Domino, Ishtar Gardens of Babylon, which I loved. It's a fantastic game. I'd recommend you pick it up. It's really good. But it has these little green trees, which are cool. They're like little tree meeples, but they don't do anything. They just go on the board when you build a tree card completely separately. And you do need to mark off these spaces on the board because it impacts potentially one scoring mechanic. So these trees exist for one possible mechanic that you may not even unlock. And there are a whole bunch of them and they're decently sized. And the production on this game is fantastic, but you, it makes you wonder, do we really need the trees? Maybe just a little token would be fine. It's, it's a thing that I made fun of for at least the first two or three plays. So it had to make the list. That's the Ishtar gardens of Babylon trees. All right. Our number seven is the guillotine in guillotine now if you've never played guillotine before it's about the french revolution and cutting a lot of heads so the guillotine itself it's a little cardboard guillotine must do something in guillotine of course right nope it just kind of stands at the end so when you line the cards out you get a general idea of where the people are eventually going and yeah it's kind of weird and it's a little freaky to be honest with you and yet it's in the game for some reason so i guess one day when the revolution does come there will be a cardboard guillotine so that's why it's our number seven the guillotine and guillotine 
All right, number six on the list is The Downfall of Pompeii. This is a little bit older of a game, but it has this big old plastic volcano in the middle of the board that you just can't help but wonder, what's that doing there, right? It doesn't actually do anything in the game. It's just a place where you can throw your opponent's pieces in the second half of the game, in the after the second eruption. It, it represents, obviously, everything that's happening, but really what you're doing is you're laying tiles and moving pieces around. So do you need a giant plastic volcano? Maybe, maybe not. I think it adds to the the table presence of the game. People have certainly come over. They want to see it and want to know what you're doing. But it is kind of ridiculous if you think about it. So that is the downfall of Pompeii. Number five is the tree from Everdell. Now, we talked about this last year, I think a little bit later around this time. Now, what's really ridiculous about Everdell is, first off, the fantastical components. I guess we could also throw in the little tree branches here that tend to roll off the board each and every time. But the tree itself is something that's uniquely ridiculous because it does take a ridiculous amount of time to set up build this fantastical tree, which looks great, and then have to place these little tiny cards flat, horizontal, where nobody could see them unless they actually go and they pick them up. So you built this tree to put things on it that make those things less useful, not to mention the meeples that often are crowded and fall off the tree and stuff. I want to love this, but it's just outright ridiculous. And that's our number five, the tree from Everdell. All right. Number four is Thanos in Thanos Rising. This is a board game that came out around the release of Avengers Infinity War from USAopoly. And it is actually a surprisingly good co-op game in which you play one of several different heroes trying to fight off the minions of Thanos. But it has this ridiculous, but also amazing, but mostly ridiculous six or seven inch tall Thanos figure that moves between these three quadrants in this board to show who he's focusing his attentions on. And that's who's going to get damaged if they stay there, right? Doesn't need to exist. It could easily just be an arrow. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's so silly and yet so awesome. I can't really fault them. It's a mass market game too, so the price isn't crazy. But if we're talking about ridiculous components that stand out, if you bring this to a game night and have it in a corner, people can see it from across the room. So Thanos in Thanos Rising is certainly a ridiculous component, even if it does just kind of add a little bit of flavor to the table. All right, number three is the Dice Cup from Stone Age. I'm talking about the original Stone Age that had this really odd leather-lined cup that would make the game smell so bad and would be so weird texture and just sticky and odd. And the fact that you had a dead animal skin in a board game, just it. I know what they were trying to do, but they really shouldn't have done it. And this is one of those cases. It's absolutely positively ridiculous. That's the dice cup from Stone Age. Number two, and this was like one of my bigger complaints from last year from a game I really liked, but I feel like did not get enough attention. And that is New Frontiers. So this is a game board game version of Race for the Galaxy. So it feels a lot like Puerto Rico because, of course, Race for the Galaxy feels a lot like Puerto Rico. Uh, but this is as a board game. But the box is enormous. It is the full size of a Calyx and a little bit more. 
And the reason why is because it comes with these massive player boards, more than you even need because there are extra ones, but they're also just in exceptionally large. And that has to do with like you're placing the planets around them and the development tiles on them, all of which could be smaller, all of which could be streamlined, all of which you don't even really need that board. You could just have planets and those tiles like you would in race for the galaxy. We just have a tableau in front of you. It's such a silly little thing, but it bothers the heck out of me because it made this game really expensive for what it is, like what's in the box. And not to mention like the little plastic bits that come in here, but that's a whole other thing. But it made it decently expensive and it makes it really large and therefore hard to actually store and carry. And I don't bring it to game night because it's so big. New Frontiers, why are your player boards so big? That's number two. (laughs) All right. So our number one is a bit of a spoiler for Charterstone and because Charterstone's a legacy game you may not have come across this ridiculous component so if you do not want to be spoiled I'll give you a couple of seconds to skip ahead so that you won't miss out or find out what exactly this number one ridiculous component in board games is all right so the number one of the top 10 ridiculous components in board games is the little tiny tea candle in Charterstone. <laughs> so you're playing yep. Charterstone, which is this elaborate legacy Euro game from Jamie Stegmeier and Stonemeyer games. And you are just so enthralled with the idea of this fantastical universe and all the wonderment it can bring and all of these wondrous little boxes and cards and stickers and everything that comes along with it and then during the game you open this little box and anthony what's in there it's a little tea candle it's It's a a five cent tea candle (laughs) (laughs) and honestly you know it was so overly disappointing that it's almost awesome because when i talk to people about charterstone i'm like huh the candle right and they're like yeah the candle and i'm like i know you're like the candle the candle like no one talks about the game everyone talks about the candle so and have you met anybody yet who's had a good experience with that candle because oh, everybody no. i've met been like oh it went out in 30 seconds or oh we ignored it or we didn't even light it because we thought it was dumb like it's nobody's actually had a good experience with that candle <sighs> not to mention the fact that you're literally you know providing an open flame <laughs> on a table in a cardboard box in a cardboard box with cardboard components and paper all over the place so uh, (laughs) i can't imagine what jamie was thinking about when he when he added this to the game obviously there is a little bit of a story element to it but basically the fact is you light the candle you play that game so to speak, wherever it is in the, you know, the game sections of it. And then if and when the candle gets extinguished, then the player's turn, who it is, gets knocked out of the game. And I just don't know why that's a thing in this game. It's so, it's so weird. It's so weird. Yeah, it had to be number one because it's so weird. It's just... And like... You have to appreciate like trying something so crazy and different. Yeah, like, absolutely. Not a game for me. There's a lot of other issues I have with the Charterstone, but I just like when I got to that game, I'm like, 
Because you stare at that box for so long. You're like, what's in the box? What's in the box? It's a candle. It's a candle in the box. <laughs> I don't know. In a world of like super overproduced components, getting a five cents tea candle in that game where it does that thing. It's just, oh my goodness gracious. The number one most ridiculous components in board games for all the good and all the bad and all of the just undeniably mind-breaking questioning of the universe component that it could possibly be there it is the little tiny tea candle from charstone all right so that's everything for this week until next time this is chris and this is anthony and jeffrey epstein didn't kill himself (laughs) okay then all right boomer we're out